Christchurch, New Malden, Sunday the 13th of February 2022, 9.30 service. Tim Davis speaking in the series, King David, the good, the bad and the ugly. The adulterous murderer. Cool. Uh, so yeah, uh, first slide, David. Um, when I was up, well, David, the good, the bad and the ugly, I should say. Uh, when I was last up here in our series on David's, um, the good, the bad and the ugly, I was speaking on David the outlaw uh, and about how, despite it being a fairly bad and ugly time in David's life in terms of things that happened to him, um, it still brought out the good in him, the best in him. David, trusting in God's faithfulness, a man after God's own heart, a humble servant of God. All the great qualities that we can associate with David. And so what are your initial thoughts on uh, when you see the title, David the Adulterous Murderer? Do you think something might have changed in the life of David? Uh, actually, my first thoughts were, should it be David the Adulterous Murderer or David the Murderous Adulterer? Um, yeah, after all, David had seven wives in addition to Bathsheba, so he was a multiple adulterer, you could say, uh, but not necessarily a multiple murderer. Um, obviously, we're not counting the thousands of people he killed in battles, and we're definitely not getting into an argument over whether killing in battles is justified in the Bible or full stop. We're not touching that today. Um, but an adulterous murderer, that's, that's quite a damning title to give to someone, isn't it? Um, it sounds like the sort of person that you normally find God utterly smiting in the Bible. Um, I'm fairly sure a lot of people in the Bible died for much less sinful behavior. Uh, and as we heard in our first reading, and as we explore a bit more this morning, David's behavior and actions are dreadful. And yet, I had to ask myself, does the Bible seem to almost want to gloss over this? whitewashing David's reputation. This is in that second reading. For David had done what was right in the eyes of the Lord and had not failed to keep any of the Lord's commands all the days of his life, except in the case of Uriah the Hittite. Um, it, it almost is like that little sort of appendage just as we quickly put in there and hope no one notices. Now, was David really so bad, so ugly? Come on. Well, we're going to look at exactly what David does. Um, but first of all, did, was everyone aware of some of the dreadful news that we heard earlier this week? Um, I'm talking about, of course, the fact that the Australian soap opera Neighbours uh, faces the prospect of ending after Channel 5 confirmed it would no longer show the air, uh, air the show, sorry, after this summer. Um, quite devastating news for those of a certain age who you know, feel we grew up with this. Uh, why am I asking, why am I talking about Neighbours? Um, well, those of you here through, who were here three weeks ago uh, may remember I described the life of David as being worthy and doing like an epic movie, um, and one which certainly deserved a better adaptation than the truly dreadful 1985 film King David with Richard Gere uh, in the lead role. But this particular episode of David and Bathsheba, for me, I think is pure soap opera. Um, and you'll see why I think that. Uh, as we look at the passage. But what we'll also see is how David's actions completely contrast with those that we've looked at previously. And in particular, how, almost, how they almost mirror those of Saul when he was persecuting David. Now, the story of David and Bathsheba um, is a, I think it's a classic tale, an example of power corrupting, of finding yourself basically able to do whatever you want simply because you're powerful 
and no one's there to challenge you. At the start of the passage, we're told it's springtime, and that means one thing, go to war. Uh, apparently, it was the in thing to do at the time. You know, ooh, first day of spring, what's my to-do list? Uh, plant the fruit and veg for the harvest, yep. Uh, and we've got to wind the crops forward or move the sundial a few degrees. Uh, got to get the ewes in for lambing. And that's right, go and slaughter the Amalekites. Yeah, let's go. Um, and this is David. You know, he built his reputation as a legendary warrior whom God gave victory to in all of his battles. He's the king. He should be leading his armies from the front striking fear into the hearts of all their enemies. And yet what does he do? He stays behind in Jerusalem, shirking his responsibility, his duty as the leader of the people. A complete change from the man who previously, we heard, trusted God to lead him into battle. And so David's strolling around his palace, um, probably bored with nothing to do, because basically all of his mates are out there on the battlefield, having a good time. And as he looks out, he happens to see a young lady bathing. Uh, now, as I mentioned earlier uh, in my previous talk, that the film King David was pretty awful and unmemorable and unremarkable. That is for one particular scene. Um, I have to say, it's that scene of David spying Bathsheba, Bathsheba bathing. And clearly the director thought he needed to appeal to a certain demographic uh, in trying to make the film a success. And so in the midst of this kind of biblical epic, you get what can really be described as like soft-core erotica of Bathsheba bathing. Um, and it's not something you might, you'd expect to see in a kind of biblical epic. Um, it's more in tune with what you saw on late night on Channel 5 when it first launched. Um, so if you've got a teenage son who suddenly says, can we watch the King David film? It may not be because he has a healthy interest in biblical films, to say. Uh, and yeah, I'd love to see VeggieTales attempt to do a retelling of Dave and Bathsheba. I really wouldn't actually. No, no I wouldn't. No. But anyway, so David. Um, now this is David who once refused the hand in marriage of the king's daughter. Even when kind of a young woman was handed him on a plate, he still says no. And yet here he is, having become king himself. And he abuses the power and status that's been given to him. Instead of seeking to do God's will and leading the people as God intended him to do, he gives in to his own selfish desires, wants, urges. He already had half a dozen or so wives, but anyway, he's the king. If he wants an encounter with another one of his subjects, then who's to stop him? And so the result of this sorry episode is what would have been a scandalous, unexpected pregnancy that you know, couldn't just be ignored. But David tries to fix things. Um, and this is where it seems to me like classic soap opera plot to me. This forbidden desire between two characters, the passionate encounter, the post-encounter regret, and the consequences of said encounter, and the inevitable, messy, tangled web of deceits, lies, and disastrous attempts to fix the problem that ensue. Uh, think I'm exaggerating? Well, um, I could certainly imagine this happening in sort of EastEnders or something, but just going back to Neighbours, you know, whilst it's a blow that Neighbours is 
potentially soon to no longer be on our screens. We can at least take heart that that other slice of Aussie soap opera addiction, home and away, uh, is due to remain on our TV schedules. Uh, and like many people of my sort of age, this was something I used to watch you know, religiously every day as soon as I get home from school uh, when it first aired in the UK. Uh, those of you like me may well remember some of those early characters. You'll certainly, I'm sure, remember Frank and Bobby. Uh, you may not remember Rue. It was this kind of love triangle in the early episodes. Um, and Rue was originally dating Frank, but she met pregnant by somebody else. And so she then concocts this plot to try and convince Frank that he is, in fact, the father. Um, even though by now, Frank had started going off Rue and had started liking Bobby. Classic tangled web of soap opera deceit. It all got quite messy. And yet that plot to try and, you know, how can I push the kind of burden of this pregnancy, make someone else think someone else, um, it's exactly what David thinks is the, what he, need, he needs to do to fix the situation. You know, I can picture him and Bathsheba almost sort of going crazy as they're kind of realising this dreadful situation they've got themselves into. It's like, how did this happen? Like, Excuse me, I think you know very well how this happened. Um, but the question is, what are you going to do about it? I don't know. I, I usually just marry the girl. Yes, problem is, I'm already married. Um, okay, okay. David's all thinking, um, right, let's get Uriah back. Make him think he's the father, okay? So you go home, sip on that nice dress. Uh, I'll get furlough arranged for Uriah. I'll uh, we'll send him back home for a bit of uh, wehe, and boom, problem solved. And that's what he does. He calls Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, back from his springtime battle royale, has a quick friendly chat with him, and then tells him to take some time off and go home and uh, wash his feet. Um, for those of you confused by that, it's a slightly odd double entendre or euphemism that hasn't really you know, stayed in use or survived to this day for reasons which seem quite obvious. It makes no sense to me, but yeah. Except the thing is, Uriah doesn't do that. He's still on a military campaign. He's still a faithful soldier and servant. And he's tasked with the protection of the people of Israel and Judah and of the Ark of the Covenant. And to do that, you needed to remain pure as a soldier. And that meant abstaining from sexual intercourse. If you remember back to when we heard about David fleeing from Saul, the priest at Nob was willing to give him sacramental bread because David and his men had been remaining pure and abstaining from sexual intercourse. In contrast, it's now David who's behaving in this opposite manner. And this blameless victim in all this, Uriah, who has taken on the role of a man after God's own heart. But still David perseveres. He's thwarted at his first attempt to try and fix this problem. Uh, he decides he's still going to try and get himself out of this embarrassing situation. So he thinks, oh, no, I'll get Uriah drunk. And then he'll feel really kind of like randy and want to go home to his wife. And yeah, that'll work. And he'll go home for a quick wash of his feet. And yet still... Uriah remains with his men. He still does what's expected of him as a soldier. He accepts the king's hospitality. It would be rude not to. But he still ensures that he's observing the correct way to behave. And so David finally realizing that his actually not very cunning plan to try and cover up this adultery is not going to work. And, you know, I want to give David credit for trying to avoid you know, additional unnecessary upset and pain to Uriah. But at no point in all of this does David ever stop 
and realize he's done a terrible thing and turn to God to seek forgiveness and guidance and be willing to accept any punishment or consequences. When Saul was attempting to have David killed early on, he sent David into a fierce conflict with the Philistines, one which Saul himself had deliberately fanned the flames of, hoping that they would do the job for him and kill David. But the Lord was with David, not Saul, and David defeated their sworn enemy. A few years later, and the roles reversed, David becomes the unhinged and selfish king. And he instructs Uriah to be sent to the front of the fiercest battle and then abandoned so he is killed by the enemy. Uriah even has to unwittingly deliver the letter with these instructions to the commander of the army. He hand delivers his own death sentence and is subsequently killed along with many other innocent men. This is premeditated murder by David who then takes Bathsheba to be yet another wife of his. How do we reconcile this episode with the legacy of David in the rest of the Bible? You know, the greatest king Israel ever had. Why would it even still be concluded in the Bible if it was so damaging? The last verse of chapter 11 says, but the thing David had done displeased the Lord. This is the only time God is mentioned in this passage. And it's quite telling, I think, that in this dreadful episode of David's life, God is absent from all of David's thoughts and actions. In recent years, there have been several cases of wealthy, powerful men being brought to account for their past actions, where they took advantage of and abused others. Harvey Weinstein is a prime example of this of someone who thought they could do what they liked simply because they have power. A few years earlier than the scandal and we often heard um, what seemed to be a standard defense of these powerful men accused of multiple offenses like these. And it was to say, I can't help it. I'm just a sex addict. I'm as much a victim in all this as they are. Thankfully, we were able to say, yes, that may be the case but your actions still have to be held to account and you must face the consequences of them now because you have sinned. The story of David and Bathsheba serves as a reminder that when we stop putting God at the center of our lives and instead think it's okay to just do whatever we like regardless of the consequences, then things can and do go very badly wrong. This episode of David's life is deeply unsettling, and yet there is hope of redemption. In chapter 12, uh, after this, the prophet Nathan comes to David and rebukes him for his actions. And he tells him this story of a man um, behaving terribly, and David's kind of like, oh, who is this awful person? And when David realizes that Nathan's talking about himself, David realizes the scale of his iniquity. He confesses his sin with great conviction. He knows, he realizes that under the law, actually he should be put to death for this act of adultery, for what he's done. But God had promised that David would be the ancestor of the Messiah. 
And so God, instead of killing David, punishes him by having the son that Bathsheba is due to give birth to die. And David knows this is what is going to happen. And yet he pleads with God for the son's life to be spared. He fasts, he prays, he goes into just this act of contrition. But yet, when God does not relent, David gets up and he goes to the temple and he worships God. God also promises that there will be more trouble and disaster to come in David's household. And we're going to hear more about this in the next couple of, week, couple of weeks. But David's heart has returned to God. And God keeps his covenant promise to David that from his descendants will come the Messiah, Christ Jesus. David's contrition is genuine. And it's perhaps that's why we have that unusual verse later on in 1 Kings 15. You know, it's not that we're trying to whitewash David's reputation, but that he was a flawed person who messed up, realized it, and did his best once again to be a man after God's own heart. In the verses we heard from the start of 1 Kings chapter 2, we see David's instructions to his son, Solomon. David had experienced the consequences of when his actions were not in observance of what the law, of what the Lord had required of him. And so he was desperate to impart this to the heir to his throne. Sadly, those were ignored, but that's for another sermon series. So what can we learn from all of this? Well, perhaps the first thing might be to look at current events. Uh, I'm indebted to a guy called Guy Brandon from the Jubilee Centre for some of these thoughts. Because we talk of David as a flawed leader whom God used. And if we think about it, we are not short of a few flawed leaders in our time at the moment, are we? If there is anything the last few years have taught us, is that those in public life have plenty of skeletons in their cupboards. Cash for questions, nepotism and awarding public contracts, affairs, lockdown parties. Every day we read about such stories and all too eagerly lap them up. We like our idols, but we like them better even fallen, even better fallen. And perhaps there are a few lessons we can learn from David's life, both for ourselves and for the way we treat key public figures in life be they religious, political, or cultural leaders. I think firstly, whatever his crimes, David was ready to admit his faults when they were pointed out to him and to try and make atonement for them. When he did repent, God accepted it. And today, genuine repentance is something which is hard to see. It comes a far second to the option of just simply trying to deny the wrongdoing altogether, of redefining morality to suit ourselves. We may be the carefully stage-managed humble apology or the non-apology where you say, you're only sorry that someone may have been slightly offended by the actions you did, but of course you didn't mean to cause offence. Secondly, and related to this willingness to repent, that being is necessary, one of the reasons for God's patience with David may be that his crimes never included idolatry unlike most of Israel's kings. He was fully devoted to the Lord. He was guilty of serious sin, but David let God be God, and he always came back to God when he strayed. And lastly, the patience and forgiveness that God still shows David 
is profoundly challenging to us. God makes a covenant with David and he sticks to it. When our leaders fail, we are, if it's said, far more prepared to want to wash our hands of them and hold their crimes against them forever. Many politicians have never come back from sexual, financial, or criminal errors of judgment and, uh, or indiscretions. Fewer still religious ministers. An accusation sometimes leveled at us is that God forgives, but Christians don't. Without trivializing these sins, can we find ways to rehabilitate fallen leaders rather than just writing them off? David had to live with the consequences of his actions, which were severe. But God is still continually faithful to his promise to David. He never withdraws his spirit from him, as he did with Saul. And so in this bad, ugly episode of David's life, we can still see good in action. And the last thought wants us to leave us with is this. You know, it's commonplace to use this episode of David's life as an example of how God uses flawed people in the Bible for his purpose. Of course, the reality is we are all flawed. God only has flawed people to use for his purpose. It's never too late for God to do something meaningful in your life and with your life or in the lives of those around you, unexpectedly so. If you've been feeling absent from God, then take the time to talk to him today, to reconnect and say, here I am, imperfect, flawed, yet loved by you and ready to live my life with a purpose that you give me. Send me, Lord. <laughs>